Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome into the Golf Central podcast presented by Callaway Golf. I'm Ryan Lavner, soon to be joined by Rex Hoggard, who was on the ground all week at Royal St. George's for the Open Championship. Looking forward to getting Rex's thoughts on Colin Morikawa's history-making major, Jordan Spieth's spirited run, and everything else that went down at the year's final major. Now, normally, this is where we would tell you about the equipment that John Rahm used to finish top eight in all four major championships in 2021, including, of course, his breakthrough victory at the U.S. Open. But instead, let's hear from the man himself. For all those people that might have doubted the, the manufacturer change, you know, there was a reason why I believed I could get better. And the new ball and the new irons uh, allowed me to hit certain shots that I simply wasn't capable of before. And it showed, you know, some of those wet shots and some of those long shots at eight iron and one. I mean, being able to hit that shot high with spin, but still go through the wind and hit it short of the pin. And many others like that is what allowed me to stay as aggressive. So uh, I need to say a huge thank to that to the team in Callaway. You know, they've I gave them a headache. I don't know how many putters they've built for me for me to find the one I needed. And, you know, I'm pretty sure I found the one I need. Uh, this one's working really well. So, Joe, thank you for all the hard work. And uh, we got one, boy. So I guess second one of the year. <laughs> now, to learn more about Rom's gear, visit callaway.golf.com slash Rom. Now, Rex, you were in England. You are back. We had to tape this podcast a little bit later in the morning because you were jet lagged beyond belief. Of course, you're only home for a couple of days before you depart for Tokyo and the delayed Olympic Games. How are you feeling? You tired? Uh, you know what? I should have gone the other way. When you texted me yesterday asking me about this morning, I, I, I was up at 530 because of the jet lag going the other way, of course. I don't. I didn't really think it through, obviously. And so I'm thinking to myself, I should have told him, let's just tape it at 5.30. Like, I was up ready to go. It was all I could do not to send you a Snapchat this morning at 5.30. Be like, hey, ready? Let's go. Come on. Let's make the podcast now. I mean, I was I was up. I do I do have a two-and-a-half-year-old who is, who is very much ready to play by the time that 6.30 rolls around. Uh, Want to get to your impressions of the Open Championship. To me, it was an inc- incredibly memorable uh, golf tournament with Colin Morikawa winning by two shots over Jordan Spieth. John Rahm uh, made a pretty spirited rally on the final day as well. Just kind of what was your big takeaway uh, from Morikawa's second major victory uh, in just eight career starts in the major championships? I don't want to dance around this. Let's both just embrace our great shame. Are you ready? I want us just a to great shame. It. Great shame for both of us. Are you ready? Like, I've already thought this through. Let's don't dance around it. Let's don't wait to get to it. I'm going to sink right into it. I don't think we mentioned him on the preview podcast. No, no, no. If production values for this podcast were just a little bit better, I'm sure that someone could dig up a clip of me saying that I I don't trust Kalamorikawa. 
that I'm suspect about his putting that I didn't I mean, think you've been, you've, you haven't said this just once you've said this like, numerous repeatedly. times. It would be so easy to find any clip anytime. Almost. You're right. I didn't do it last week. Thankfully that would have been way too easy and, and way too harsh on me, but I'm going to own it and I'm going to continue to own it because before I get to my next point of shame, which is your shame. And, and, and trust me, we should both own our shame on this one going into this. And I wrote this Sunday night. Yes, he was fantastic. He did exactly at Royal St. George's, what he did at TPC uh, Harding Park at the PGA Championship. He was first in putts, ninth in putts per GIR. They don't have strokes game putting at the Open Championship, but my guess is they don't have much of anything for the Open Championship. They don't have shot shot tracker. They don't have any sort of usable stats. It's it's like going back to the dark ages. It kind of is. It's kind of sad. Uh, But if they did have strokes game putting, my guess is, he would have been phenomenal at that as well. And statistically, I didn't even notice this. This is totally on me. And this morning I was just kind of looking over some stats. He only hit into one greenside bunker. He was one for one for the week in sand saves. That's, that's Tiger-esque. That's absolutely amazing. But I'm going to stick with my same concept here. And I wrote this Sunday. As well as he putted last week, and he did putt well last week, going into that tournament, 170, 172nd strokes game putting on the PGA Tour this season. 79th in three-putt avoidance, 141st in putting from five feet, which is kind of an important range when you talk about the Open Championship. I'm going to defend myself only in as much to say that I was wrong in my take. I will own it when I'm wrong in my take, but statistically, I still feel like, all right, I had a point. I feel like my point is still valid. He's a wonderful player. Watching him swing his long irons is like golf porn, man. Like It is amazing to watch him do that. The putting, I'm still suspect. I'm own it. He, is a one, he is a wonderful player. So you are saying that Kyle Morikawa, who is by any metric possible, a now a historic player. He is the first yeah. player in history to win two different majors in his yeah. debut. He is the only player besides Tiger to win the Open Championship, the PGA Championship before the age of 25. And yet you are still not sold. You are essentially saying that he fluked into those major championship victories because he putted well. That is essentially what you're saying. No, no, no. Now you're putting words in my mouth. Fluke never came out. I would never think that. I mean, look, he's, he's won enough. He's proven enough on you called, you just called him a wonderful player. That's like saying, bless your heart, Colin. Oh no, no. I didn't mean it that way. I mean, I I think no, that that's like, yeah, this is Brooks Kepka saying I can put up with anybody for one week. Right. I mean, that's gotta be the, that's gotta, no, that's not even you, even you, I can even put up with you for one week. No, no, no. I, I think what I'm trying to say here is going forward it's still hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea that he's going to be the kind of player that Jordan Spieth became, that we expect John Rahm to become, that Brooks Kepka has become, simply because there are those holes in his game. And I, I just touched on his putting. He's also not a great driver of the golf ball. And look, it is fantastic that everything came together this week like it did at TPC Harding Park. And I can imagine that's going to happen quite a bit over his career. And it's going to be a Hall of Fame trajectory right now. Let's be honest about it. But I'm still just suspect simply because the tools aren't there on a week-to-week basis. So here's a stat for you, Rex. Okay. I know you think that he's a suspect putter, and, and he is. He, he is. I mean, you look, at, you look at the stats, he is a suspect putter. However, if you don't think that he can get hot with the putter three to five times a year, particularly in the major championships, you're just kidding yourself. So think about this. In the two years that he has been a pro, so this is still a very small sample size, Colin Morikawa has been a top 20 putter in the field seven times. Let me say that again. 
Colin Morikawa in the events that he has played seven times. He has been a top 20 putter in the field in those seven events. Colin Morikawa has five wins and two playoff losses. I want to say that again, seven times top 20 putter, five wins, two playoff losses. If Colin Morikawa putts well, not saying he's the putt great. He doesn't need to be top five. He doesn't need to lead the strokes gain category, just top 20. A, that's putting well, that's putting good, that's putting decent. A top 20 week, everyone else is basically playing for second place. Like that's just how dominant his iron play is. In the stroke scanned year since 2004, only Tiger Woods has averaged more than a shot and a half gaining on the field with their approach. That's the company that Kyle Morikawa is currently residing in. He is 1.52 strokes gained per round with his approach. And so, yes, statistically, overall, he is not a good putter. In fact, the statistics show that he is a poor bad putter. But if you don't think that he can find something three to five to seven times a year, that's like a third of the, a third or a quarter of the events that he's playing. You're kidding yourself. He didn't say that either. He's a performance based player. You look at his wins. Now he's won. At the PGA Championship, he's won a WGC event. He lost in a playoff at the Memorial, and now he wins at the Open Championship. Yes, he might not be able to 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 putt well at the Arnold Palmer Invitations Invitationals of the World, but he clearly seems to rise to the moment and is so performance based in these majors that he's kind of accessing that ability more often than virtually everyone else in the world. I missed last week because the internet connection was so bad in the UK, along with along the technology that we just addressed on watching your face twist into pain as you read through these stats, like, like, like you're just discovering them like, Oh, like they're golden nuggets. It just fell out of the sky and you're so happy. You're just so delighted. So you, you have, you have, no, you have no rebuttal to. Uh, well, no, no, you're putting words in my mouth again. I, I totally believe. And I think I just said that in my previous comments that yes, of course. I mean, we've seen it enough. I mean, there, there are going to be weeks when you're right. He is unbeatable. I don't know. And this is probably a different debate. So I don't want to go down this road too far. And I was just because I was thinking about it this morning. What I think where we're ending up here very, very quickly in golf is you have three, four, maybe even five players. Now that Jordan's back, certainly what John Rahm has been able to do. Brooks Kepka is being Brooks Kepka again at major championships. And certainly you put more Kawa. And I mean, I think we're sort of glossing over others. JT would be another one. Any one of these players can be unbeatable on, on a given week. I mean, we've seen it time and time again. I'm not going to be a prisoner of the moment just because it's been more Kawa this previous week. I simply think that if everything falls into place and certainly Jordan put words to this on Sunday at Royal St. George's that a couple bounces, a couple putts go his way. And I always cringe when, when Jordan Spieth talks about putting poorly and he made every 15 footer that he looks at that that's a little cringeworthy in my mind. However, I think there is something to it. There is something in that sauce where I don't know that you're going to have a player that's going to run away and win, let's say three out of six majors, which is amazing. I mean, that that's a tiger esque run. Colin just did I just, two out of eight. I know two out of eight is very impressive, but I don't see simply because of the competition. And again, I'm not, I'm addressing this as a collective. I'm not looking at each one of these players and picking them apart. Like we've been doing, like I've been doing with Morikawa. This is just more from 30,000 feet looking down. You're thinking to yourself, Jordan Spieth only needed a couple bounces on Sunday. 
Even John Rahm just needed a couple more bounces to go his way, maybe a putt here and there. And both of them had great weeks. However, if you look at the big picture, I simply think these could go, at least that one, could have gone so many different ways on Sunday with one bounce here or there. More Kava got up and down from the hay twice. Absolutely amazing. We can sit here and talk about that birdie run in the middle of the round. And it was certainly impressive. I had a chance to spend, spend a lot of time with his caddy, J.J. Jakovic, after the round. And him, having him go through the car. And, you know, it was amazing. And there was some, some things about that trip that, that I wasn't crazy about simply because of the, the protocols and everything that went into it. Having the chance just to sit by the side of the 18th green and with just JJ and I, whereas, you know, normally in that situation, there's 10 of us huddled around the caddy and that, that's what we want to talk to and we want to get these nuggets. There was no one else out there. Having that chance to sit and talk with him where it was just a conversation and the recorder happened to be on, it was really an amazing conversation because – he talked me through things that I had never even that I would never even thought about as far as his demeanor on the golf course, as far as comparing to how he felt at Harding Park to how he felt at Royal St. George's, where there was never any nerves, where he felt like he was in whatever we want to define the zone as. I mean, I think relaxed in a state of sort of just competitive bliss, whatever you want to say about it, he just finds that. And when he does, he's amazing. All right, I've owned my shame. You ready to own yours? Yes. Yes. Text exchange, I believe this was Saturday. This wasn't even Sunday night. Lavner, I find myself cheering for Spieth bogeys. Me seems extreme. No, this is what deep-rooted issues look like. And on and on. You would have, what would have happened, honestly, if Jordan would have won? What would this conversation have been like if Jordan would have won? Just me sobbing for for 30 minutes, you trying to interject some sort of perspective and, and context into what we just witnessed and, and one of the more remarkable rises uh, back to the top of the summit that we've seen in recent memory. Just, just, just that, I would say. Sadness. Sadness, pity, uh, woe is me. And, and look, I think my, my Spieth fandom, I, I can't even call it like, like Spieth love. I just think it's like, it's, it's fandom at, at this point. Um, has oh, you're a, you're gotten, a fanboy. I mean, you should yeah. just own fanboy. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I, I mean, <clears throat> I like to, I like to think that, that Jordan and I rose, rose um, to our respective positions kind of along similar tracks. You know, the first, one of the first tournaments I covered was the 2010 U uh, S junior amateur uh, where he was the number one ranked player in the world and, and kind of our careers have, have kind of followed each other uh, ever since then. And so you're I comparing did not, yourself to Jordan's. Speech. No, no, I'm saying we like followed similar tracks. Okay. okay. Um, I mean, Jordan's, Jordan's what, 14th in the world? I'd like to think of, I'm at least top, I'm at least a top 25 golf writer. Uh, I'd, I'd put you top 15, easy. Sure, sure. sure. So, I did, so I did not want to see Jordan Spieth rise from the ashes without me there. Um, and so that is why I found myself cheering against him. And, and look, there, was, there were several nervy moments um, in that final round, there's, there's no doubt about it. Positions where, where Jordan really could have put even more heat, um, on Kyle Morikawa. It's, it's easy to, to forget now that he shot 66 in the final round. He had two bogeys, um, early that happened, just happened to be offset by that uh, triple breaking ego putt that he made on seven. Then he was kind of off to the races, but I think, you know, you know, context is, is really important when it comes to Jordan Spieth and, and where you look at where this can go. Now in the future, five months ago, Jordan Spieth was the 219th ranked 
driver of the golf ball on the PJ tour, 219. I mean, there's only like 230 players <laughs> who have, who have teed it up. I mean, he was statistically one of the worst drivers of the golf ball. And yet watching him all last week at Royal St. George's where there's tall hay on virtually every single hole, you really didn't find yourself holding your breath every time Jordan was over a tee shot. Did you like, he didn't hit any of those foul balls that we'd grown accustomed to over the past couple of years. Sure. He, he missed, he missed some fairways. I think he finished T17 in terms of fairways hit, but it wasn't those wild shots where he's 20, 30 yards off the edge of the fairway and really getting himself in trouble and making those doubles and triples um, that had kind of duped him over the past couple of years. So to me, that was huge progress. And I, I know you kind of cringed when you said that, you know, Jordan talked about his putting and lamenting some of the, the miscues that he had with the putter, even though statistically he did putt well and it seemed like he was filling it up from everywhere. To me, that's just kind of like a refreshing reminder of, of just how far he has come with his long game. The sense that it really even wasn't a question that he wasn't going to put the ball in the best spot to make birdies and that it was all going to come down to the putter again. To me, that very much felt like 2017 when he was playing his best golf and he was statistically one of the best iron players in the PGA Tour. To me, it seemed like we jumped ahead and we've, we've totally forgotten what these last four years have been like because he's getting into a spot now where his long game really isn't even a concern at all. And it's, it's easy to forget. You're absolutely right. How, how far back he was not that long ago. I mean, look, it feels like the comeback has been complete. I, I feel like the comeback is complete now just for no other reason. Forget about the fact that he put together a great final round and gave it a good run and runner up finish at a major championship. All of those things. It was just the things he said. I think he truly expected to win. I think he truly felt like, yes, this is exactly where I belonged. He didn't have that pop in the step earlier this season when he won. If, if you remember correctly, there was a lot of, there's a lot of work to do. There were a lot of warning signs. There, there were some stop signs that he put up for all of us. who wanted to jump on the bandwagon. And he's and still, it. he's still saying it. He's still saying that he's, he's progressing. He's, you know, but he's going a, the right direction, but he's not there yet. Now. But there's yeah. confidence now. There was the things he said, I mean, specifically on Friday, not so much on Sunday, but it was, yes, this is where I expect to be. And it just a fine point. I would argue he lost that tournament with back-to-back bogeys to finish Saturday's round, which led him to march straight to the putting green and blow off the media simply because I think he knew how important that was more so than any of us is he knew that he'd given himself, he played his way out of the final group, which is always something that you're thinking to yourself, if I can just be in the final group, I can stare this guy in the eye. And the other thing is he, it's not giving yourself any momentum going into the final round. You could just see he was seeding. Yeah. I don't think, and I think when you, when you look at Jordan Spieth now in the major championships, I don't think this is like 2015 or even like 2017, you know, the, the depth and the strength at the top of the world, specifically when you look at a guy who's oozing with confidence, like John Rahm, or a guy who's just absolutely brilliant with the irons. And as you've mentioned, a streaky putter uh, like Colin Morikawa. I think, I think Jordan needs to be, have these major rounds be cleaner. And by that, I mean, you can't have the three putt on 17 on Saturday. You can't have the two foot miss on the um, 54th hole of a tournament. You can't have those early bogeys on, on Sunday. I mean, so there's just these little things that he has to clean up. And I think that's different than even, you know, four or six years ago is that the, the guys who are at the top now are that much better. And so they're not making those mistakes. And so Jordan, who is still not a great driver of the golf ball is still not on Morikawa's level with his irons. 
his putter can betray him at times. He needs to be close to playing perfect golf when I don't think in 2015 or 2017, he needed to get to that point. And so if he could just clean it up, and I think that's largely a byproduct of not being in that position over the past couple of years, he'll, he'll get to that point. He'll probably get to that point in April, but with Spieth's skill set, he needs to be, he needs to be cleaner if he wants to, to kind of match the, the brilliance that we've seen now of, of John Rahm and Kyle Morikawa, who to me have really separated themselves from the other world-class players. I was on a plane ride home yesterday from the United Kingdom uh, with Morikawa. And there is not a cooler sight than watching someone unpacking, getting ready to deplane when we landed in Atlanta and pulling that box from the overhead. And knowing, you, uh, I know what's in the box. Were you sitting in first class with him? Uh, I was not, but I could see him from where I was sitting back in steerage. Do people, do people recognize him? Uh, yeah, no, I think everybody on the plane, cause again, it, it was, uh, we were coming from England and I think the vast majority of people were either, there were a lot of players, a lot of caddies, a lot of media types, but even, I think even the, the regular people, you know, the, the everyday folk on the plane had an idea of who he was and it was fun to watch. I mean, I, I think what was interesting, and I, I'm not going to name any names here, but sitting in the lounge. Name them. Name them. No, no, no. I'm not going to do that because it, and you'll understand why. Sitting in the lounge waiting for the flight from London Heathrow Airport to Atlanta, uh, we all had to show up really early, like like so early. It was stupid. And so we're all kind of sitting there at 5 a.m. And there were a couple players in caddies who had not gone to sleep. <laughs> And it, it, I felt sorry for them. Like, trust me, I have gone deep with the best of them. And, and I've shown up at an airport and, and felt like I, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this flight. It's going to be a long day. There was about three or four players and about five or six caddies. I know be shocked there who had not gone to sleep the night before, who had not taken a shower and had not stopped drinking. Uh, there, was, there was a great uh tweet i'm sure you missed it by by our, our buddy uh jason sobel who said that kyle morikawa is the kind of guy who's going to return the claret jug better than than what he found it it's gonna be uh, which is which is certainly <laughs> going to be uh the case after after shane lowry having well, all of this is having, wait a minute all this two is years. to be said all this is to be said morikawa looked fresh as a daisy yeah like you could you could tell he had finished up and he and he and jj had made mine have gone i think they were going to go have a glass of wine like they did at tpc harding park and sort of talk about it but that was the extent of it. I don't know what, maybe some chocolate milk went into the Claire jug that night, but that's, that's it. That's all I could imagine went in there. So it is, it is interesting now when you, when you spin this forward, because if you remember from the PGA championship, Colin kind of had a, kind of had a letdown and he'll be the first to admit it that he didn't play as well as he wanted to coming off that PGA championship victory. He, I mean, he missed, uh, he missed two, he missed three cuts, uh, in the fall, just he said he really struggled with kind of resetting his goals. You know, so much had, had happened so quickly. But I think with the way that the schedule is set now, he's departing on Sunday uh, for the Olympics where you will be. Then he has the WGC, then three playoff events, then the Ryder Cup. I think there's enough to, to keep him focused here and did not kind of have that letdown that he experienced after TPC Harding Park. You did touch on it briefly. Uh, what were your impressions of covering this Open Championship? An Open Championship like we haven't seen uh, before, not just because there was 32,000 fans, which was by far the most we've had of the COVID era, but all of these restrictions, very few uh, American media members who were there. Kind of, How would you sum up the week? This, this isn't a visual medium, so I apologize, but I'm going to scan just so you can see the camera to the side of my desk. See that? That is a stack of COVID-19 tests that I still have to take. Still have to take? Well, yeah, because I leave for the Olympics, as you pointed out. So yeah, uh, I have to uh, 
Yes. But I took 12 tests in 11 days and some of them are self-administered, which by the way, I hadn't done the self-administered test. And I don't know why, but you are not gentle when you self-administer a test. I, I think I drew blood once with one of the swabs up my nose. Like it was so hard. I'm crying. I'm gagging catch, myself. Catch, like, you just, just catch a little brain matter on the end of the little day. brain matter. Yeah, no, it was fine. Uh, I, I wrote about this on Monday on my way home because I was taken, as you pointed out, 32,000 people a day on the golf course, which was full capacity, pretty much as close as we've been to full capacity since Thursday at the players championship last year before the pandemic shut everything down. And there was an element to, and I talked to a couple of players who, you know, were finishing up early on Sunday, Rory being one of them about what it felt like coming down sort of that amphitheater. And you've, you've seen it enough time. You, you know what it's like. I mean, the fans are, are very well educated. They're, they're very appreciative. They're there early. Like they start queuing up at eight o'clock in the morning. They want to see that first group come in and, and cheer all day long. And, and for the first time in a long time, despite, all of the protocols and look, there was plenty of complaining from players and caddies last week because it felt like we took a step back in time as far as a tour, a, a sport, because at least here in the United States on the PGA tour, we've seemed to have come out the other side. It was felt like we, was, we were starting from scratch as far as the testing and the protocols and having to stay in buddy groups and everything else. All that being said, I think after four rounds and having the opportunity to play a tournament like that, that specific tournament, in front of that many people, again, a very, very appreciative crowd. I, I think everyone took something away that had been missing for a long time. We've talked about this a lot, about it's different when you're playing in front of no people. I, the TV product's fine. like we, We've addressed this. But the actual playing inside ropes with no one there to cheer you, I feel like has it, it took away for a lot of players the experience. And for the first time, again, since the players last year, that experience returned. It is crazy when you think about these seven majors in an 11 month span, just how far that we've come. You were at uh, the 2020 PGA Championship, also won by Colin Morikawa. I mean, there was maybe, maybe 30 media members there total when you consider cameramen, writers, uh, photogs. I mean, it was a bare bones crew with hardly anyone on the property. And then you fast forward 11 months in a location in the UK where restrictions, as you mentioned, are, are really strict. And yet you had 32,000 fans on site. I did want to get your um, kind of impressions of this Rex with seven majors in 11 months span. Obviously we've never had that before now need to wait nine months until the next major championship with the 2022 masters. How would you rank these seven majors? You can rank them any way you want. You can rank them a in list. terms of, uh, you can rank them in terms of, which ones were the most fun to cover, which were the most exciting finishes, which we were want the to do a list best majors. Yes. How would you rank the majors? And you can start, you can start from seven because that's probably easier than, than that, naming them the best. That makes, that makes me really excited. Um, I, I, you're, you're catching me flat footed, but I actually love this. All right. Should I, should I, should I start? You want me to start? Do, do you have a list? Yeah. If you have your list, go. Cause I yeah, don't so want to think this through. Go ahead. Yeah. Go. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the quote-unquote worst worst of the seven major championships over the past 11 months. And, and to me, this one is easy. Unfortunately, it's Dustin. Someone has to be last. It's Dustin Johnson at the 2020 Masters. Look, we were so grateful to be able to just have a Masters in 2020 with all that we'd endured throughout the pandemic, especially in the springtime when we really didn't know what the immediate future held. Just being able to have a Masters was unbelievable. The fall foliage at Augusta National – that said, I hope we never have it again. The golf course played totally different. 
It was competing with football. Georgia was playing that weekend. It was very upsetting. Um, and quite frankly, it was kind of a boring uh, Masters tournament with Dustin Johnson pulling away and eventually winning by five shots. To me, Dustin Johnson 2020 Masters was the quote-unquote worst. Someone's got to be worst uh, if we're going to rank these seven majors over the last seven months. What, el- what else you got? Uh, I'm going to start. I'm going to go a different way. I'm going to go with uh, Colin Morikawa at the PGA Championship at Harding Park. Was the and- worst. Uh, yeah, this has nothing to do with Morikawa. And look, it was entertaining and it was fun. But I think we, we were both there. And you can agree that not having the crowds there, that was the first time that it felt absolutely surreal. There was nothing enjoyable about that experience. California was still on lockdown. You and I were still locked in a hotel. Everything about the experience, I just didn't enjoy it. And, and again, this doesn't take anything away from Morikawa. It was a great victory, a little flat coming down the finish, simply because of how flat, dominant. A little flat, a little flat. Well, I mean, he drove you, the green. I'll I give mean, him that. I mean, uh, I mean, yes. He also ch- he also chipped it on 14. He drove the green on 16 and made a seven footer for Eagle to to win the golf tournament. I mean, he shot a boat. He shot 65, 64 on the weekend. That's my seven. Are you not entertained? Uh, by comparison, again, this is all by comparison, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about. All right. About. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna just rifle through these, okay. uh, because otherwise this is gonna take an hour. So we had DJ at seven. You got somewhere to uh, be. Unfortunately, I had I have another Masters tournament with with Hideki uh, at at number six. Back that was back. kind of yeah, that was kind of a that was kind of a sleepy tournament as well. Uh, until until Hideki kind of had those late wobbles on fifteen. Um, there was at least a little bit of drama on sixteen D, but that of course was quickly vanished um, after Xander Shoffley. He said he caught a wind gust. Uh, I think he just hit a, a terrible shot at the absolute wrong time and found the water on 16. So that was my six. Number five, we're going to go with Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, yes, it was a game change. At least it felt like a game-changing moment at Wingfoot with how he won that golf tournament. It really seemed to signal his arrival and potentially uh, kind of a revolutionary moment for the game. We'll see if that pans out. We can, we can actually touch on Bryson uh, later. But to me, that was number six. Of course, as you mentioned, with the PJ, there were no fans there as well, which is why I had Colin at number four. And I, I know you, you did not like the experience at Harding park and I'm sure you were not alone. I kind of put that the, the newness factor, the novelty of it, of just having the first major back to me, there was something unique about that, that kind of separated it from all of the other no fan events. And I thought the leaderboard was terrific. I think you had eight or nine players who within one shot of the lead uh, heading down the stretch, a lot of big names as well. Uh, the Colin Morikawa Open Championship is what I would put at number three, just an absolute brilliance and kind of established himself as a historic player. We've touched on that. Don't need to go there any further. John Rahm, to me, the second best major of this stretch, the 2021 U.S. Open. Ten players, Rex, within one shot of the lead. Literally, if you could think of a big-name player in golf, he was up there. Brooks, Bryson, Rory, Xander, Louie. And then Rom breaking through with the birdie birdie finish to end. And then of course, and I don't, I don't think there's any doubt about this. The best major in the last 11 months was Phil Mickelson at the 2021 PGA championship. It wasn't necessarily a compelling back nine. It wasn't like Phil went bananas. Like he's in at the masters to win like in 2004. I mean, this was kind of a snoozer at the end. However, just the sheer unbelievable nature in which he won that golf tournament basically he had not done anything for the past year and he hasn't done anything since 
But for him to pop up and win that major and to beat big, bad Brooks Kepka, the best major player by far of the last five years, and to have that incredible scene in the 72nd hole when we nearly got trampled to death, uh, to me was by far the most memorable major tournament of the last 11 months. That's my spiel. What is yours? Appreciate you gas bagging when I went through my list. Uh, I'm going to cut straight to the chase. You and I had one and two the same. I agree with you. Good. Phil Mickelson, it, I mean, the actual competition itself, at least late, it wasn't enough to, to catch your attention. But when you watch something historic, when you watch just the way the crowds were reacting, everything about it, it was just a very, very special moment. By far the best of the seven. And yeah, I went with Rom as well at the U.S. Open. That was more for the competition just based more on what he did and maybe what Louie didn't do. I mean, that, that we can sit and debate that a little bit, but the, the bird of the last hole, the way he did it, to do it in dramatic fashion, to, to have it sort of harken back to Tiger Woods doing what he did at Torrey Pines all those years ago on the 72nd green. I think those two were pretty easy. I'll, I'll jump back ahead. I had Hideki winning the Masters at six, at six. I think that was yours as well. Yes. Yeah. We, we matched yeah. there. Uh, because it's simply because, and again, don't take anything away from this, it wasn't Augusta still. And I know they had limited patrons. It felt more like friends and family at the time, but it just didn't feel, you didn't have the roars in the trees. It just didn't have the same thing. I, I actually liked the competition. I enjoyed watching Hideki. He was kind of surgical. I mean, for, for historic purposes and kind of like the yes. significant impact, I mean, Hideki's win is probably going to be as impactful, you know, potentially as, as Phil winning at age 50. And I kind of differed here with you. I went with the Masters with DJ. And I know it probably wasn't very exciting with you. For, this is my fifth pick. It wasn't exciting for me. Seeing the emotion for no other reason from, of all people, Dustin Johnson, who never shows emotion about anything. You know, he never kind of shows anything about anything, if we're being honest. But you got an idea of exactly how much that meant. I mean, it's one thing for Steve Stricker to win and then cry because he cries <laughs> of everything. He, right? he, he, cries, he, cries, he cries if he wins the senior players. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he has cried whether if he's win or loss, but he's going to lose the Ryder cup this year. He's going to cry, whatever the case may be, he's going to cry to see DJ get emotional at the end of that shows you how much. And also, also Rex, I'm sure you agree with this personal rankings in terms of best experience for us selfishly, Dustin Johnson, 2020 masters by far and away the number one experience being able to see that golf course with no other patrons on it with maybe 500 people total was unbelievable. I, I said at the time, and I stand by it, if I never get to cover another Masters, I can die a happy man because that experience will never be duplicated. Being able to see that golf course, see that tournament up close and personal like that. This goes against everything we've talked about on this podcast. Because the best one is it's only the best one or uh, in selfishly, that list. yes, because selfishly. the unwashed masses aren't in your way, so you can yes. see the entire golf course. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about the experience. I don't see anything wrong with that. I'm a very selfish person. I didn't want Spieth to win the Open because I wasn't there, and I don't want I don't and I don't want the Masters to have patrons so I can actually see the action. Get out of the way, you <laughs> buffoon! Stop cheering. Move. I want to see the team box. That's fantastic. Uh, now this one I actually had a hard time with, and this comes down to the fourth pick and the third pick, and I kind of went back and forth. I went with Bryson winning the U.S. Open. And I, as much as I enjoyed that simply because of what he did, he just sort of took wing foot and broke it over his knee like the big gorilla does. He just picked it up and, Yo, come here, you big, <laughs> you big burly golf course. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do to you. Everyone says you're the best. And, and it felt like he was sort of redefining the game or maybe taking advantage of it, however you want, however Xander put it that time, which he did so well. But I still think it, it has to go behind what Morikawa did last week. And this may be a recency bias on my part. 
simply because a couple things. One thing, all the things we've addressed about Morikawa, that when he is in full flight, he is this joy to watch. I mean, it's not, not just him hitting these majestic long irons. It's him making clutch putts and him hitting the fairway when he has to and him thinking his ways around the golf course, which, by the way, he's also one of the sneaky best interviews. I shouldn't even say sneaky. I mean, I have to put him into the category of probably top three interviews on the PGA Tour now because he is so insightful. I mean, in, in he he's funny, and, and I just think I kind of overlooked him maybe a little bit. You've covered him longer than I have. So I, I would put that. I put uh, Morikawa last week at Royal St. George's at three for a lot of different reasons. And it's also we have not touched yeah, that's on right. this. That's right. That's right, Adam. So basically, you we, we just kind of differed on the Colin PGA Championship victory. Is that the only one we, we did? And I kind think it's of, worth yeah. pointing out. And we didn't touch on this, and, and I think it's worth just mentioning that the one knock – however manufactured it was against Morikawa is he had made all of his hay, all, all, most of his hay during the pandemic. When crowd, oh, that, that was such a stupid, that was such a stupid criticism. Again, however manufactured, this sort of puts this all to rest. Like he did it in front of 32,000 people. He heard all the boos. He heard all the cheers that that one's gone. So if nothing else, again, still a little dubious when it comes to his putting, but he can win in an empty field or he can win in front of 32,000 people. I actually think like the star players on the PJ tour thought that that was the case though. I, I, and I think Jordan kind of, kind of it alluded did. to this or, or at least yeah. suggested this. I remember oh, Rory yeah. talking about it last fall that the, the fact that there were not fans on site, these major championships was making it easier for these young players who quite frankly, just didn't know any different and hadn't been, in that environment. And uh, to me, that was a, a, a bizarre criticism because good play kind of transcends the environment and the atmosphere that you're in. Uh, but, but Morikawa thankfully ended that rather silly critique. Well, and, and I do want to make the quick transition away from that because you brought up Bryson and, and I'll gladly talk about what happened on Friday. I mean, what happened last week with his equipment manufacturer and it was surreal. And, and there's a lot of different elements to this. The one thing that I think this has spin it forward, and I reached out to the PGA Tour media folks this week because I felt like Steve Stricker had to do a Zoom call this week and get on a line with reporters because people have to know, how are you going to manage this team room now? Because you're either Team Bryson or you're Team Brooks. Most players don't want to be on either team, but they're going to have to pick one team or the other, and this is going to be an issue. Stricker has not addressed this. Harrington, Patrick Harrington, the European captain, was asked last week about it three times. It's time for the U.S. captain to have something to say about this. I think, and I, I, I do believe it'll happen, I, I think they're just going to swallow their pride for one week, go about their business, they're going to be cordial to each other, they're going to fist bump each other, and they're going to go on their way. I mean, there's not, there's not a seething hatred between the two. I think now uh, they're just kind of no, I feel playing like it for is. the public. There's a, seething, there's a seething hatred between the two. Brooks clearly does not like, yes, Brooks clearly does not like Bryson. Bryson's indifferent. Yes. Like, I think Bryson wants to be liked. Uh, Yeah. We all want to be liked. I I don't think the chemistry issue is going to be a a factor at all. They're not going to be paired together, as as Brooks said, uh, not so eloquently uh, last week at Royal St. George's. But JT piled on last week. JT piled on last week. I had a player text me right after everything happened on Thursday and Friday about like, what is Stricker going to do? Like, this is a problem. Like, not, it's not it, a problem. You pair Bryson with Patrick Reed, send them out and they're done. And you take the L you take two L's. Oh, I don't think I don't. I actually think Bryson and Patrick Reed are, are a terrific pairing. They're so, mm. they're so polarizing and yet they might be polarizing 51 weeks out of the year. But when you, when you put on the red, white, and blue uniform, 
They have the full support of the American fans, which is exactly what they're going to have at Whistling Straits. I think their games complement each other. They actually like each other, which is a which is the first part of the equation. To me, it's it's a no-brainer. You put Bryson with Patrick Reed, send him out, and they're probably going to bring back a point for you. And that way you don't have to – like this isn't, this isn't a basketball team. Like you're not going to have Brooks just refuse to pass the ball to Bryson. I mean, they really should not be mingling at all except from the team room. And in the team room, they could be separated. They can go play ping pong. One of them can go drink beers in the corner. Like it's not, it's not, it's honestly not a big deal. They're not going to sabotage the other. In a perfect world, Stricker will have a separate team room for, for Bryson and Patrick in, in that scenario. I can see them just going, Hey, this is where you guys are going to hang out. You have your own little tiny ping pong table. You have your own beer garden. Like th- this is your area. Cause I do think, and, and I only say this because I, I expect at this point Bryson to continue to pile on because he just can't help himself at this point. Like it's clear, like he's just going to keep doing this until Bryson just throws up the, you know, the white flag. Like I'm done. You beat me, man. Like I've lost, like, just leave me alone. Just, just stop picking on me. I mean, it's what I did. He wants, he wants no part of the feud. Oh, he wants absolutely no part of it, but he keeps kind of, I mean, he's trying to do the right thing and, and pretend like it doesn't bother him. And we all know it bothers him. Like all of these things bother him. What he did last week, criticizing your own manufacturer, biting the hand is probably that one's going to haunt him for a long time. And it, it says something that when the manufacturer fired back and called their guy that they're paying a lot of money to, to represent them, an eight-year-old and that manufacturer, that rep still has a job on Monday morning. That shows you that, look, he probably shouldn't have said it, but there's people inside that building, people who make decisions inside that building who thought to themselves, well, yeah, he acts like an eight-year-old. Like I mean, he just spoke the truth. I mean, he just put you know truth to words, and that's all he did there. And the fact he still has a job proves that Bryson is difficult. We all knew Bryson was difficult. We just didn't know to what extreme. Exactly. But he only has to have one other partner. Uh, you no, I'm fine with that. One partner for him. And Patrick Reed's the perfect partner, and their games complement each other. No, I only thought this became a problem when, when JT chimes in. And you feel like the other players on the team, not Morikawa, he's, he's way too nice for that. I mean, and I, I don't know who else is really going to end up on that team because he's got 15 picks apparently. But I, I don't know that the fact that JT piled on the way he did, it's, it's almost a little shocking where, all right, now this is starting to get out of hand. Like it, it, but when he it was tagged just, him. I think, I think it, I think it was lighthearted in the, the comment you're referring to is that, you know, a guy who swings 135 miles an hour is surprised that the miss hits go far offline. You'd think Mr. Scientist would have known that with a, that sounds lighthearted to you in this context. He tagged, he tagged him. Boy, he's, that he just said, means he's not a coward. Well, JT is not a coward. Yes. But this is, that's kind of like his go-to line over the past couple of years. To me, that was a, a lighthearted dig. And I, I think it's totally overblown. People might not think that Bryson's their best friend, just like they don't think that Patrick Reed is going to be their best friend. But if you watch a PJ tour round, you say regular PJ tour round, all of the players are talking to Bryson throughout the course of the round. They're all talking to Patrick Reed. To me, this, this friction storyline is really overblown, except when it comes to Brooks. And Brooks has had issues with everyone. <laughs> you know, Bryson's not the only player in the U.S. team room who Brooks has had issues with. You think Patrick DJ. Reed's going to be looking at, at Brooks? DJ. You think DJ's going to be looking at Brooks? I mean, bro. he, has, he has issues with everybody. I, I would almost argue that among their peers – Bryson might be more popular than Brooks among PGA no, Tour no. players. No, I, I disagree with that. I, I mean, look, it's, and Brooks can rub you the wrong way and not being voted player of the year 
the year that he won majors, it was a very, very loud testament to how much they don't like his attitude of only four weeks out of the year count. Because for the other 200 and something PGA Tour players, those other 52 weeks, I mean, uh, uh, 48 weeks out of the year, they mean something as well, simply because this is what you're going to focus on and you're going to dismiss the rest of the tour. They did not like that. So Rory ended up getting the vote for player of the year when it, it historically had always gone to the guy who won majors. So I think there is something to be said of there's a part of Brooks that people don't like. But that being said, Bryson just rubbed everybody the wrong way. Phil being he, the, look, he, he Phil does. being maybe the only exception. Yeah, and and which is interesting because if Phil can somehow put something together over these next five or six weeks and and really give himself some serious consideration, I think um, he's a pick, man. Or I mean, for we, one we of the debated this. There's no you don't way. Want to hear There's it. no way. There's no way he's a, he's a pick. But if if Phil is, then he is Bryson's partner. If Phil is uh, a pick, he is he is Bryson's partner. There's that no could work. No, that could absolutely work. And, and but I would, not, because- I would not want Phil Mickelson on that team. I would want him as a vice captain, no doubt about it. But Phil has not done anything besides that one week at Kiwa. And that was a big week. That was the PJ Championship that is operated and owned by the PJ of America, which also operates and owns the Ryder Cup. It is a big week, and Steve Stricker is, has been friends with Phil Mickelson for 25 years. It is going to be hard to leave him off that team. But I'm not sure even Phil wants to be on that team if he's going to play like this. Well, he's 17th right now, which is not, I mean, if we went, if we, we looked down that's, historically. That's, that's, not picks, a, that's not a lock. That, that, it's not a lock, but it's also, it wouldn't be a wild outside the box pick for Steve Stricker. And I think we're, I have a lot of respect for Steve Stricker. He's going to do the one thing that everyone will tell you, you have to do as a, as a Ryder Cup captain. And that's not bring any ego into the team room, which is what we can point to all of the players who made the mistake of doing that. Nick Faldo, Tom Watson, however you want to go down the list. Steve Stricker is not going to do that. But he's also got a little company man in him. And we've had this conversation before as well. And it's hard for all those guys who were either on the task force or in that task force universe to suddenly turn their backs to the guys that were on the task force and in that task force universe. We saw it with Davis Love. I think we're going to see it this time. I mean, look, there's a scenario. Tiger, Tiger turned his back on Phil the 2019 President's Cup. He didn't, use, he didn't burn one of his captain's picks on him. At some point, yes. you have to make a decision about what's best for the team. And no, I agree with that. And I think that Tiger is one thing. I don't know that Steve Stricker has, I don't know how I would put this. I simply don't think that he's going to dance outside the box as much as you think he that is. Was a very, that was a very delicate way. Uh, to put that. <laughs> Look, I think, yes. I think Phil just, Phil has to do something over the next month. Uh, and I'm not sure that he, that he has had, since you, since you did bring up the Ryder Cup Rex on the European side, I did think it was interesting that, uh, because of his T12 at the Open Championship, Shane Lowry moved into one of the automatic spots, bumping out your boy, Victor Perez, who does not have a top 10 finish on any tour since March. And so Padraig Harrington has to be licking his chops at the prospect of, of Shane Lowry moving his way in. Victor Perez moving his way out does not have to use one of his wildcard picks on him that way he can use it as he said and, and said repeatedly he's going to use two of his three picks on ian poulter the other pick on sergio garcia and then he can kind of see what's see what he wants to use for that final pick maybe it's a player who gets red hot and rips off a couple european tour wins maybe it's a veteran like justin rose maybe it's a newcomer uh like robert mcintyre who, who once again uh played well at the open championship but your boy 
is going to break my heart because I had to do the 180. I had to do the turnaround on Victor, just like I've had to do the turnaround on Cole Morikawa. Neither one of those takes age very well. I think he's going to end up being on that list. What was interesting, Padraig Harrington spoke with the media after his final round at Royal St. George's on Sunday, and I thought the numbers that he threw out were very telling. He said he's looking at four veterans and two newcomers for, as you pointed out, sort of that last spot because we all know who's going to get the first two spots. I think everyone understands that, which means he's going to lean towards a veteran. My, if, if the newcomer would be a Victor Perez, um, whoever else might fall into that category. Certainly Bobby Robert, Robert McIntyre is Bobby McIntyre is a fun player to the left-handed. It's just, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be Justin Rose in all likelihood. Uh, yeah. I, I just, the thinking of those final comments was, was very telling because I think he would probably lean over. All right. Uh, since I was across the pond and clearly didn't spend any time over my grill, you sent me pictures a very well-grilled meat as I was eating fish and chips and all kinds of other bad food. I appreciate that. That was a special level of mean. Uh, thank you. Uh, by the way, it was a, I mean, when you're, when you're up, when, when you're up as early as, as we were watching here on the East coast, the open championship, you feel like you have two breakfasts, you have two lunch, you have to have two dinner. So we, we were firing up the smoker uh, for just about everything. I do have um, some ribs going on the gateway drum uh, later. I'll be sure to send you um, a couple of photos and videos for that. Rex, you were leaving for Tokyo when and kind of what's your what's your game plan here for the next two weeks? Uh, leaving Sunday for Tokyo, uh, getting in Monday. I think it's going to be um, it's going to be a different Olympics. I think we've all talked about. It. I think Rory probably put the best voice to they're it. Talking, they're talking about eleventh hour cancellation on Tuesday. Um, I, I still don't see that happening. Although certainly there's, there's no been way. a lot of positive tests, and it, this goes back to we had this conversation last June when. We get into a situation after the restart where there was a couple of positive tests and everyone sort of up at arms and, well, they have to call it all off. I think everyone understands that there's going to be positive tests. I don't know what the tipping point is of the IOC saying that that's too many positive tests. We're, we're not going to do it now. My guess is based on, again, I can show you the, the stack of tests that I have to take before I get on the plane Wednesday, I mean, on Sunday, Bobby, the second most telling thing and this, again, was from Roy asked him when he was heading over to Japan and he's getting in Tuesday night, which gives you an idea that a golf course that he's never seen a couple time zones away, not quite sure his heart's entirely into it. Rory seems like he's going to be an ambassador for the sport um, and wanting to see the Olympics and the games going forward, as opposed to, I want to give myself the best chance to, to win a medal. Is that, is that the case? Is, is that, is that your thinking as well? I think his line was, I'm not a very patriotic person. And which oh. Well, Which well, so it's not, it's fine. And again, he's in that weird situation that it's hard for Americans to wrap their mind around as a Northern Irishman. Do you play for Ireland? Do you play for the UK? I mean, it's, it's difficult. It's politically charged. He always felt like he was getting backed into a corner by this decision because either way he was always going to alienate a portion of his fan base simply because of how things still are. You and I have seen it firsthand at Port Rush at the 19, uh, 2019 open championship. I, I just think that he's a little resentful. Having to do this, I think he's come around to the idea that look, he doesn't have to do this. He doesn't he have does. to do this. He's choosing to. He's because no, no. he wants he wants to be an ambassador. Exactly, he wants to do it for the game of golf. I, what's fascinating in all this is how, again, he's being backed into a corner where the likes of Dustin Johnson, who he was world number one when he announced that, no, thank you, I don't want to go, and here's my list of reasons. And I'm not debating his reasons. I think he's got a very good list of reasons. But he wasn't the only one. I mean, Adam Scott has made it clear. I don't even know. I don't even think he would have qualified at this point. But there's been no shortage of players who have decided not to do it. Talking with players last week and, and managers about 
where this is falling in into the schedule, Hideki Matsuyama is probably the best example. I was talking with Bob, his translator, who we all know, we all love Bob, but he pointed out because of COVID and because of the Olympics, his positive COVID test, and because of the Olympics, Hideki is going to go a month and a half without playing a PGA Tour event, which means he's probably going to drop from 12th on the FedEx Cup points list to maybe outside the top 25, maybe even outside the top 30, which for a player like Hideki this late in the season, that's a big deal. Timing, scheduling, this is still very, very problematic for all of these players. Are all of these guys actually going to play? So Memphis is the WGC event that starts the four days after uh, the tournament in Tokyo wraps up. Are all these guys actually going to play that golf tournament? Or are they going to skip a WGC? I think most of them are going to skip. My guess is John Rahm is going to skip. I would guess uh, Justin Thomas is kind of an outlier. I didn't have a chance to ask him. Certainly, I don't think Rory is going to play. Now, there's a charter flight from Tokyo to Memphis. And even if you're not in the field in Memphis to give officials credit, they, they you could get, I on mean, these guys, play. these guys aren't squeezing into 26 C next to the bathroom. I mean, I don't, I'm not concerned about the actual, the actual flight from Tokyo to, to Memphis. I'm talking about, you just had an exhausting open championship. A lot of those guys headed over for the Scottish early. You have what five, six days to kind of get readjusted to the East, Eastern time zone. Then you go to Tokyo. Then you come back to Memphis for a WGC. Then you have a week before three in a row for the playoffs. I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's not, it's certainly not ideal. Well, the timing isn't, and this is something that's going to keep coming up. And, you know, you'd like to think that maybe golf can sit down and come up with a better option and by golf. I mean, the PGA tour. I mean, look, they were part of this push to get golf back into the Olympics. I'd like to see the PGA tour make some acknowledgements and maybe during an Olympic year, reschedule Memphis, reschedule the playoffs whatever it takes, give the players a, a one month window where you're still playing events, but they're not events. If you miss that, you'll feel like you're falling behind because all of those players that don't go to Memphis where you've got guaranteed points and you have an opportunity sort of pad your playoff advantage. And you have to skip that because of all the reasons you just pointed out that's problematic. And look, you're making players make this choice between do I need, do I do what's best for my country and do what's best for golf? and go and represent my country in the Olympics and try to win a medal? Or do I do what's best for me? Do I do what's best for my career at this point? It, it's not a fair situation for any of these players to be in. Yeah, keep in mind, $15 million goes to the winner of the FedEx Cup, which, which will be decided uh, in just seven weeks' time. Uh, Rex, I do look forward to the podcast next week where you'll be live from Tokyo, hopefully enjoying some sushi uh, from your quarantine hotel uh, with some impressions of the golf course it's going to be the host both the men uh and the women i do look forward to that very much next week thank you guys for listening this open championship recap of the golf central podcast presented by callaway golf we'll talk to you next week so many teenagers waiting to be adopted from foster care feel like their lives are over They've given up hope of having a permanent home and are terrified of aging out with no support system. Right now, more than 113,000 children are waiting to be adopted in the U.S. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is dedicated to finding them the right family before it's too late. Learn how you can help at DaveThomasFoundation.org slash learn more. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.